John chapter 2 and verse 1. Um, I'm so grateful to be back. Um, in 2011, when I finished my service as youth president for the Southern California District, um, the uh, district team blessed my wife and I with a certificate for a cruise, um, Colonel Carnival Cruise Lines, a gift certificate. And uh, the problem is, I've been so busy, I haven't been able to use it until um, this last week. My wife and I were able to uh, take advantage of that and do a cruise to Alaska. And uh, so we had a, a wonderful time seeing all the fjords and uh, whales and um, the railroad that they used in the gold rush, and uh, also just a, a, a wonderful time for my wife and I to be disconnected from all of our responsibilities and just to connect with one another. And I want to thank you guys for being faithful to the house of God and for our leadership team, just knocking it out of the park, and those that ministered and preached. Thank you guys so much. And if you're grateful for the ministry team and the work that they've done, just give them a hand right now. Amen. Praise God. And uh, my wife and daughters are in uh, Indiana visiting with um, their grandparents and my wife's parents. And uh, so they're having a great time. Uh, yesterday or the day before, I believe it was, they rode horses and they've been swimming. And uh, so uh, they're having a great time and they'll be back here in a few days. First John chapter 2 and verse 1. The Bible says... My little children, these things write I unto you, that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he is the propitiation for our sins. In other words, he paid the price. He has the evidence that he paid the price for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. I want you to notice here that the, the passage of Scripture says here, following out of the end of uh, John, 1 John chapter 1, beginning in John, 1 John chapter 2, it says, I'm writing this to you so that you will not sin and uh, that you don't disobey God's plan ignore or reject his commandments I'm, I'm writing this to you so you don't walk in darkness so you don't make these types of mistakes but then the second side it says and if you sin if you make a mistake if you fall short if you fail he's writing to the church here understand if you fail if you make mistakes if you stumble we have an advocate with the father jesus christ the righteous and uh, I don't know why, but I felt as I was praying and seeking God for this service to speak along the lines of uh, something maybe a little different for a Sunday service. But I want to talk, speak what I feel in my heart. I want to talk about my advocate, your advocate, our advocate. Because I believe if we lack understanding about what it means that Jesus Christ is our advocate, then we may bear and carry unnecessary condemnation. The enemy may be able to leverage our mistakes and shortcomings against us in an unfortunate way. But when we realize what it means to know that Jesus Christ the righteous is our advocate and the human experience of our Lord and our Savior mediates for us and intercedes for us and is our advocate. Lord Jesus, we thank you today for your spirit, your presence, your touch, and your anointing. And we pray, Lord God, that in the next few minutes that we would lift you up, that we would exalt the name of Jesus Christ, that we would celebrate what you have done for us, that we would remember the cost and the price. And Lord Jesus, that we would get revelation and understanding of how the fact is that you're not against us, that you are for us, that you are not accusing us, 
you are advocating for us. And in the name of Jesus, I pray that revelation would flood this place. And if there are those that the enemy has held captive to condemnation and will not take a step towards Christ because they're intimidated, that the intimidation would lift, that faith would fill this house, and God's grace and mercy would be put on parade today, we pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. Everybody said amen. Why don't you put your hands together and praise the Lord right now. God bless, and um, you may be seated. I'm going to ask you a rhetorical question that doesn't require an answer, because I already know what the answer is. The question is, have you ever done anything stupid? And I don't mean stupid like S-T-U-P-I-D. I mean stupid like S-T-O-O-P-I-D. Stupid. You know what I'm talking about. You made a mistake. You uh, really uh, did something foolish. A couple nights ago, my wife and I saw a group of three guys that did something stupid. Um, they were sitting at a table, just a couple tables from us in the evening as we were getting something to eat in uh, Whistler Mountain, uh, British Columbia. And uh, as we were eating there, there were two tables over, three young men. And um, they were using R-rated language at the table pretty loud. Can I just say that R-rated language is not to be used in public, right? Okay, so if you're contributing to that, please stop. Save it for your bar fights or whatever. Come on now. Don't just sit there and chat with each other and drop the F-bomb every now and then. That's no good with family sitting around. And so I was getting a little perturbed, and uh, I, I was doing my best just to try to concentrate on the conversation that I was having with my wife. And uh, then all of a sudden... The three men, I, I noticed that they jumped up from the table, leaped over the wall because we were in, in an outdoor dining establishment, and went running off. All three of them went running off. And uh, the table next to ours, we looked and we saw them. We're like, oh, my goodness, did they just dine and dash? And, they're say, and they said, yeah, they just put in an order for more drinks. And when the lady went to get their drinks, they jumped up and took off. And I'm like, man, that is terrible to do that to an establishment and to take advantage of them like that. And then all of a sudden, uh, one of the, the young lady that was at the table next to us said, oh, look, one of them left their wallet sitting on the table. So she reached over, she grabbed the wallet, she put it on her table and put her hat over it. And so we sat there and about oh, 30, 45 seconds later, one of the guys comes back like this. And uh, while he was doing that, one of the guys at the table had gone and got the management. The management showed up and said, where'd your buddies go? Oh, they took off. Now, you're planning on paying for this, aren't you? He said, uh, uh, yeah, oh, of course we're going to pay for it. And uh, I can't find my wallet. And the girl said, here it is. It's under my hat. And gave it to him. So this is stupid. If you're going to dine and dash, don't leave your wallet, okay? But people make bad mistakes. And sometimes it gets them into trouble with the law. One of the uh, most foolish things that uh, people do, and it's, it's really not necessarily calculated, but a lot of times it's a blunder, a mistake, is a, a DUI. Somebody driving under the influence of alcohol. Maybe they didn't intend to do that. Their, their judgment was impaired. But uh, by driving under the influence, they put everyone at peril. And if they get pulled over and they fail the breath test or the uh, walk the line test, then uh, they can be in a lot of trouble. It can cost them financially. It can uh, cost them uh, time away from their job, time away from their family, jail time, affect their record. All of these things can happen. And I've heard a lot of the advertisements on uh, the radio. Some of you maybe have heard about them that if you get a DUI, don't try to fight it alone. But get a good lawyer and get a good representation because when it comes to selecting your advocate or your lawyer, if you make a bad choice, it can cost you enormously. It can cost you in terms of time, in terms of your record. 
if a person does not know how to adequately defend your position, you don't stand a chance. Now, I like, I enjoy, uh, in fact, I did this uh, while I was on my vacation. I enjoy experiencing departure by reading legal thrillers, specifically John Grisham. And uh, for, since I was a young man, I would read these and just get lost in the story. And uh, I, I just enjoy the intrigue and the suspense of these thrillers about things that are happening in courtrooms and uh, with lawyers and people that are accused and so forth and people that need legal counsel. And uh, when they are selecting who it is that is going to represent them, it is a life-changing moment uh, because if they choose wrong, then it could be very bad for them. But if they choose well, it could serve them well. It could uh, end up them serving time or too much time, even if they are innocent, uh, if they have a bad lawyer. And if someone's real poor, they can't afford a lawyer, what do they get? They get a public defender who is uh, uh, perhaps the the lowest form of uh, defense that they can get, and it can cause them to perhaps serve time for something that they didn't even do. Now, I want to talk today... Uh, about the scripture using heaven as an allegory for a courtroom, for one that is accused, for one who stands uh, accused with evidence. There is an aggressive prosecutor. There is an austere judge. And as a defendant, the person is trying to figure out how they're going to answer or respond to the charges against them. In order to give you a little bit of a background for this idea of the courtroom in heaven or in the spirit realm and our advocate who fights for us, we've got to go back a little bit and talk about God. All right, I, I saw this one time. I just thought it was funny. Uh, you know how some churches will put our subject for this week. You know, our subject for this week. Uh, uh, are you using your talents or... Uh, have you sowed your seed of faith? And our subject for this week, I looked at it, our subject for this week, God. And I'm like, duh. I mean, yeah, let's go to church. And what do you think they're going to talk about? But we're going to have to talk about, in order to get an understanding or, or a foundation for this, we're going to have to talk about this thing, this individual that we call God. The Bible teaches us that God is a spirit. He is all-powerful. He is an all-knowing creator of everything. So everything that is physical, visible, that we can see, its building blocks were created, the scripture teaches us, <coughs> by the word of God. Now the Bible teaches that no man hath seen God because a spirit is invisible. God is invisible. And, of course, in the Old Testament, you'll see passages of Scripture where it talks about the finger of God or the hand of God or the eye of God. Please understand that this is a poetic tool called anthropomorphism. That's a big, fancy word, but what it simply means is giving something non-human human characteristics so we can understand. So it's not teaching that, God, that there's a massive hand up in heaven. Or, or a huge finger, or, or a massive, massive eye that's watching everything. What it's teaching is, is God doesn't have a big muscular right arm, but when it talks about the right arm of God, it's talking about the strength and the authority of God. When it talks about the finger uh, um, of God, it's talking about His ability to interact. When it talks about the eye of God, it talks, it's talking about the fact that this spirit being has the ability to see and perceive what is going on. So God is invisible. He is a spirit. And God, the Bible teaches, created the physical realm, which we know as the earth and space and everything that we see. Now, you've got to get this right now. God is a spirit. He exists in an invisible spirit realm. Everything that we see and we are familiar with is physical, and it is in a physical realm. So from an invisible spirit realm, the Bible says God spoke. And when God said, at the power of His Word, 
things came into existence. Matter, the physical realm. So I want to tell you that the spirit realm existed first. And the spirit realm is more real and more relevant and more significant than the physical realm. But catch this right now. When God created the physical realm, He did it through the power of His Word. When God was silent, He may have had ideas, but nothing happened. But when God expressed Himself, when God spoke, when his ideas were made manifest through his word, big things begin to happen. Turn to somebody and say, big things begin to happen. Amen. He formed the oceans. He put, the, he put space and the lights in place. He said, let there be light, and there was light. All the things that God did was done through the power of his expression or his word. And the invisible, from the invisible came the physical realm. So there are two different planes. There's the spirit realm and there's the physical realm. And that's where you and I come into place. Is this okay today? We're going to come right straight from the Bible here. That's where you and I come into place. Because everything that God created, He created in the physical realm. But then when He created man, the Bible says He did this differently. In Genesis 2, 7, it says, The Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. So the thing that sets human beings apart from the rest of God's creation is that we are not just physical beings, but we are physical beings and spiritual beings. So that means the invisible spirit realm in which God dwells, we have access to because God breathed into us spirit or pneuma or breath. And man or human beings became a living soul. So just so you got this straight, God is a spirit. You have a spirit. Does that make, diff- uh, make sense to you right now? You are a physical being containing a spirit. God is a spirit. And our physical body is the container of our spirit, which is the real person that is eternal. Our physical bodies are not eternal. Do I have anybody over 40 with me that can amen the fact that your physical bodies aren't going to stay together forever? Amen. And you're not going to be as dominant as you once were. Somebody needs to tell Kobe Bryant that it's over. Amen. Oh, sorry about that. Made some people mad right now. You're not supposed to do that when you're a public speaker, you know. Genesis 1.27. So God created man in his own image. And in the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. God, as the crowning point of his creation, created human beings. It says that he created them in his image, in his likeness. There's something about you and I that is like unto God. So the question is, the big question is, why are we here? Why was man created in the first place? Why am I here? Anybody ever wondered that before? You're just like doing your thing, just like living life, and all of a sudden it hits you. What in the world are we doing here? Why am I? Oh, you guys don't think like that. All right, sorry. You're like, where's my dinner? But every once in a while, as human beings, we have these existential questions. What am I doing here? Why did God create me and give me this desire to know Him and to understand the universe and understand reality and have this passionate quest for truth that that the whales don't have and that uh, other animals aren't pursuing after and dolphins don't get together for a worship service. Uh, But we as human beings are pursuing after the spirit realm, this very real realm that is beyond the physical. Why were we created? The Bible says in Revelation 4.11 we were created for this reason. Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. Okay, here's the point. For Thou hast created all things, and for Thy pleasure they are and were created. The Bible says right here in the book of Revelation that God created everything 
for His pleasure. That includes you and me. And the reason we as the crowning achievement of His creation are so important to Him is because He created us with a desire for fellowship and relationship. He created us in His image so that He could have a relationship with us. Amen. You understand here. 2 Corinthians 6.14. Here's the problem. 2 Corinthians 6.14. God created man, put him in the garden, walked with him in the cool of the day, enjoyed fellowship and relationship. And then the Bible says, but the Bible says this is the problem here. It says, what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with darkness? One thing I forgot to tell you about God. God is absolutely pure. Amen. He is light. There is no shadow, darkness, crookedness, nothing like that about Him. He's absolutely pure and holy. Everybody with me right now? And when He created us, in order for Him to have relationship with us, if we were walking in darkness, if we were partakers of sin, if we were in rebellion against Him, then it affected His ability to have relationship with us and our ability to have relationship with Him. Light hath no fellowship with darkness. That's why it was such a sad day in the Garden of Eden when Eve disobeyed God's command and Adam followed her into her transgression and they disobeyed God. The sad part about that is, is it affected God's ability to gain pleasure from relationship with His prized creation and drove a wedge between human beings and their Heavenly Father, their Creator. God is holy and just, and He can't just overlook our rebellion. He can't just overlook our sin. He can't just wink at our darkness. I know that that's the kind of world we live in today. It's called uh, 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 the spirit of the day. It's situational ethics. Oh, they're a good person. They've got a good heart. It doesn't matter that they do A, B, C, D, E, F, G. That ignores and rejects God's plan. Look at their heart. They're good people. See, God can't do that. He is light. And we walk in darkness. There is no fellowship between light and darkness. Are you with me, my brothers and sisters? So Adam's rebellion, his rejection of God's authority, led to spiritual darkness in he and his wife's life. And it destroyed their fellowship with God. And God sought to restore fellowship with human beings. As you read the Old Testament, we're going through the whole Bible today. Isn't that awesome? As you read the Old Testament, God gave to the children of Israel the law through Moses. And when God gave the law through Moses, He said, This is how to avoid darkness. I want you to understand that this is sin. This is rebellion. This is abomination. This makes me sick. And if you want to avoid darkness so that we can have some semblance of relationship, you need to understand and submit to and obey this law. Follow these rules. And the Bible says that the first covenant they broke repeatedly because they had not the power. Are you guys with me still? To obey the law. So the sum total is this. God and His creation, mankind, that He created for fellowship, were estranged by darkness, by sin. And the Bible teaches this, that the wages of sin is death. That when you rebel against God's authority and do your own thing, that you're going to get paid. And the payment is death. That includes separation from God. And that includes physical death and the second death, which is eternal separation from God. So it's kind of a negative sermon so far, isn't it? I mean, I told a few funny things at the beginning, but now you're like, oh, my Lord, why did I come to church today? This sounds pretty bad. So what is the answer? What is the answer to this dilemma? Because the Bible says all have sinned. Oh, my goodness. And fallen short 
of God's glorious ideal. Look at your neighbor and say, bro, you're in bad shape. Because we all have sinned. Turn back to him and say, but you look good. All have sinned. All of us have messed up. All of us deserve to die. All of us deserve to be eternally separated from God. All of us deserve to never experience our purpose in life because we can't even relate to the one who created us for our purpose. All of us are in that position. What's the answer? The answer is blood. Blood. That's what the Bible teaches. Blood. Why? Because the wages of sin is death. And blood is evidence that death has happened. Hebrews 9.22 Almost all things are by the law purged with blood. And without shedding of blood is no remission. Your mistakes, doesn't matter if it's 30 years ago when you made it. Without blood, there is no remission and no forgiveness of sins. And so they would sacrifice animals, capture the blood, and every year to the temple or the tabernacle, they would take the blood sacrifice and sprinkle it on the mercy seat. But there was a problem with that. Hebrews 10.4 says, For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. So there's another problem. Blood remits sins, but the blood of bulls and goats can't take away sins. That's why they had to do it again every year. Because the, 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 the guilt of it was never removed. It was just pushed forward. And so next year they had to look at all the sins from all their previous years and deal with it again with an insufficient blood of bulls and goats. I feel the Holy Ghost here right now. I feel a witness of the Spirit. Every year, sin's penalty had to be paid again on the Day of Atonement. And that's why in the spirit of humanity, there was a longing for a Redeemer. Somebody who could once and for all reconcile us back to a holy, pure, and perfect God. The spirit of prophecy would come upon the prophets of old. And they would begin to talk about spiritually empowered predictions about the coming Redeemer or the coming Reconciler. Isaiah did in 9.6 says, For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. Isaiah is riding along, and he begins to feel that inspiration. He begins to feel that whisper in his ear. He begins to feel that God-breathed inspiration. Unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. His name, uh, uh, his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, a child, the Everlasting Father, a child. Boy, this doesn't make sense to me, but this is what I feel inspired to write down. Unto us is going to be born a child that the government shall be upon his shoulders. He's going to establish a kingdom of which there will be no end. Hallelujah. In Isaiah 7 and 14. Think about this. This was hundreds of years. Before Mary heard from an angel. This was hundreds of years before a scared, espoused husband named Joseph was trying to figure out what he's going to do with this bad situation on his hands. Hundreds of years before, in Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14, the old prophet again felt that same urge and said, Therefore, the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive. He's writing this down and saying, what in the world? And bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He's writing this down. A virgin's going to have a baby. The angel appeared 
to the scared espoused husband in a dream. He's like, she's pregnant, and I didn't do it. we got a problem. What am I going to do? How do I trust this lady? She's got a story, but man, you know, this is looking bad on me. And an angel appeared to him in a dream. The angel said, among other things, She shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Verse 22, Now all of this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. Uh Uh-oh, you got to get this right now. (laughs) Hey, Joe, this is a fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. A virgin is going to conceive. And his name shall be called Emmanuel. You know what that means? That means not God sent somebody, but God with us. A child is born. The everlasting father is a child. Oh, my goodness. Praise God. John chapter 1 verse 1 says, In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. What's the Word? The Word's an expression. Until it's expressed, it's just a thought. It's invisible. But when it's expressed, it causes things to happen. Verse 14 of John 1 says, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. What is Jesus? Come on, somebody. Who is Jesus? Jesus is the eternal creator of heaven and earth, showing himself to humanity. Jesus is the eternal, invisible God of the spirit realm, stepping into the physical realm so that people like you and me who have a problem seeing into the spirit realm, uh huh, could see what God wanted us to do and wanted us to be and that He could redeem us from our sins. Come on, somebody. I need somebody to praise Jesus right now because He is worthy to be praised. Hallelujah. Let me tell you who Jesus is. Colossians 1.15 says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. That means He is the invisible God made visible. To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He shall grow up before Him as a tender plant. He hath no beauty that this world should desire Him. It's talking about Jesus. God's going to reveal His power and show Himself to the world. Amen. In a physical world. Through the man, Christ Jesus. From the spirit realm, the invisible God revealed Himself in the physical realm through a body. Jesus was born. And there's never been anybody like Jesus. And there never will be anybody like him. Because he didn't have a physical dad. It was the Holy Spirit that overshadowed Mary. And that which was born of her was a holy thing. Jesus was fully human, but he was also fully divine. He was the one and only ever God-man. He was God and he was the Son of Man. He was human and he was divine. No, he was not two people, but he had a dual nature. On his mama's side, he was a man. But on his heavenly father's side, he was not a God. He was the God. Come on. This is the amazing, amazing paradox of Jesus. Is that as a man, he was born as an infant, yet he was the mighty God. As a man, he increased in wisdom, but as God, he knew all things. 
As a man, he grew hungry, but as God, he fed the multitudes. As a man, he became a servant, but as God, he was the King of kings and the Lord of lords. As a man, he came to live on the earth, but as God, he was the creator of the earth. As a man, he prayed to God, but as God, he answered prayers. As a man, he suffered and died, but as God, he emerged from the tomb. Hallelujah. Come on, somebody praise the King of kings and the Lord of lords. I've come to talk about Jesus. I've come to lift him up. I've come to celebrate who he is today. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Come on, somebody praise Jesus. He's given him a name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow and every tongue would confess. Jesus Christ is Lord. I feel it. Hallelujah. Come on, somebody. There's faith in this place right now. Jesus has the power. Jesus is able. That's why we worship Jesus. Buddha can't do that for you. Hare Krishna can't do that for you. Muhammad can't do that for you. Humanism can't do that for you. A college degree can't do that for you. But Jesus is the Redeemer. He is the reconciler of man to God. Because He was man and God. Praise God. Hallelujah. Amen. Sit down just for a minute. So what did he come for? Why did he show up? 2 Corinthians 5.18 tells us, All things are of God who hath reconciled us to himself. God reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ. And in case that confuses you, and it says, and he's given us the ministry of reconciliation. In case that confuses you, look at verse 19. To wit, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. God was in Christ. Reconciling the world to himself. He didn't send somebody else. Come on now. God, the divine nature of Jesus Christ is the eternal God. And he was in Christ inseparably with the dual nature that could not be split apart was who he is. John one twenty nine. How is this reconciliation going to happen between God and man? John saw Jesus coming. And said, Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. He didn't say the Lamb of God, which pusheth forward the sin of the world. He said, There's the Lamb of God. He doesn't look like a lamb. He doesn't have wool and he's not bang. But that is the Lamb of God. And he's come to take away the sin of the world. Hebrews 10.10 says this, By the which... Will, we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. That's why when Jesus died on the cross, his final words were not, God bless y'all, good night. But his final words were, it is finished. What's finished? The need for atonement is done. No more animals have to die. No more sacrifices have to be given because his blood was not just blood of another spotless lamb, but his blood was precious blood that had the power to wash the sins. Come on, somebody needs to celebrate in here because you have no hope until a man named Jesus, who was God in flesh, died for your sins and for mine. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Let me talk about the blood of the Lamb. The blood of Jesus paid it all. 1 Peter 1.18, the Apostle Peter said, We are not 
redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold. You couldn't be saved with money. You couldn't be saved with stuff. You couldn't give enough corruptible things to be saved. And you also aren't saved from your vain conversations received from the tradition of your fathers. Uh Uh-oh, religion won't save you either. You can't be saved with money, and you can't be saved with religion. But look at what Peter says in verse 19. What was it that saved you? But with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot. Somebody needs to celebrate Jesus because it is the blood of the lamb that made salvation possible for you. Oh, come on. Praise him right now. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Halabahosatai. Some people think talking about the blood is barbarous, that we moved into a new era. We've got to clean up the church a little bit, the language, the vernacular, the uh, uh, nomenclature. Let's clean it up. Let's scour it up, and let's talk about what Jesus did for us, but let's not talk about the blood. But the Bible says it's with the blood of the Lamb, not lambs from back then, but the Lamb of God. The spotless, perfect Lamb of God that was prophesied by the elders years before. It was the blood of the Lamb. Oh, God, have mercy. That gives you an opportunity to be saved. You can't be saved through your good works. You can't be saved with your money. Come on, somebody. You can't be saved with religion. You can't be saved by going to church. But you can be saved by the precious blood of the Lamb. (laughs) Oh, the blood of Jesus. Wash me. White as snow. So now here's the final question. What about now? What is Jesus doing now? First Timothy 3.16 says this. Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. It's hard to figure it all out. Who is Jesus? Bible says there's one God. Who's Jesus? It says God was manifest in the flesh. That's Jesus. Justified in the spirit. God. Not God the Son. That, that, passage, that, that phrase is not even in the Bible. God was manifest in the flesh. The Son of God's in the Bible, but not God the Son. God was manifest in the flesh. Justified in the spirit. Seen of angels preached unto the Gentiles, believed on the world, and received up into glory. It went back to heaven. The glorified body of Jesus Christ with nail-pierced hands and a big spear mark in its side is in heaven. By the way, did you know that's God's body now? That's the only body. That God will have. It is God's expression. What is Jesus doing now? 1 John 2 1. My little children, these things I write unto you that you sin not. Members of the body of Christ, the will of God according to the scripture is that you avoid sin and that you live a righteous life. And if any man sin, we have, present tense, an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, the righteous, and He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. What is an advocate? An advocate is defined as one that argues for a cause, a supporter or a defender of a cause. Number two, it can be one that pleads in another's behalf or an intercessor. And number three is a lawyer. Our advocate is our lawyer. He is our 
counsel. Jesus Christ is the one who comes along beside us when we do something stupid to state our case and submit the defense before the righteous judge, the eternal, holy God. Of course, there's a pretty aggressive prosecutor. He's called the accuser of our brethren, Revelation 12 and 9. The accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. There's this allegorical courtroom in heaven where the righteous judge sits with absolute purity and austere. There is the yapping accuser. The same one that tempted then becomes the accuser. Satan has a list of all of your sins, all of your failures, all of your shortcomings. Don't think you got anything past him. Your wife may not know about it, but the accuser knows about it. He is a strategic observer, and he's collecting information on you. The accuser yaps like a mad cow. It causes us to wonder, why even try? God's mad at me. My situation's hopeless. I can't get this straightened. There is an advocate. If we understood what Jesus is doing right now, we'd never have it. See, you can't access the advocate without repentance. So when you sin, understand, the devil's got your number. But when you repent, then your advocate, Jesus Christ the righteous, goes to work on your behalf. Listen to me right now. When you mess up, Jesus is not against you. When you mess up, Jesus is on your side. Ah, come on. Somebody needs to get this right now. (laughs) When you fail, Jesus isn't upset with you. When you fail, Jesus doesn't turn his back on you. You know why? Because he understands. He's been there. He got the T-shirt. He was tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. He can relate to our human condition, our frailty, our weaknesses, our our tendencies to be inconsistent. Oh, somebody help me lift him up right now. And so he is a mediator between God and man. Between our failures and God's perfection, there is a man, Christ Jesus, who is both God and man. He's the only one that can mediate between humanity and divinity. And we have an advocate. And when you chose Jesus, you chose the best lawyer. Because he has something in his briefcase. (laughs) God have mercy. He has something in his portfolio. He has something in his manila envelope. Whenever we ask God to forgive us, when we ask the Lord Jesus to forgive us of our mistakes and our failures and our sins, no matter how bad it was, no matter how grievous that it was, somebody listen right now, that God's justice says we must be separated. We must die. We can't have fellowship with God. And so the Lord, in an allegorical sense, Picture this with me. Opens up his briefcase and takes out the compelling evidence that's going to make it a closed case. He pulls out a picture of a crown of thorns that's dripping with blood. He pulls out a picture of a rugged cross stained with blood. He pulls out the evidence, the CSI evidence of a broken body that had been drained of all of its blood. He puts it out on the table and all of a sudden, come on someone, our advocate is not just our lawyer, but he has the evidence that he paid the price, amen, for us to be forgiven and for us to be set free. And from now... From now until the Lord comes to get His church, He is our advocate, Jesus Christ, the righteous. That's why somebody ought to rejoice when we sing, God is fighting for us. He is on our side. What can separate us from the love of God? If God be for us, who can be 
against us. Somebody stand up and give him some praise right now. Somebody stand up and give him some praise right now. Hallelujah. Come on, put your hands together and lift up the name of Jesus. Jesus, you are worthy of the highest praise. Hallelujah. 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 Revelation hit your mind right now. The Lord is not against you. The Lord is for you. Even when you mess up, He's still for you. He's on your side. He's got your back. He's fighting for you. But you can only access the advocate through repentance. The Bible says if you repent, He is faithful and just to forgive of your sins. You access your eternal advocate by asking God to forgive you. And then it's all forgiven. Man, somebody needs to get somebody a high five right now. Somebody needs to rejoice in the Lord right now. The devil's a liar. He has told you that God's finished with you. He's so, that God's so frustrated with you because of your mistakes, because of your past, because of your failures. Understand that the devil's the accuser of the brethren. And even though God expunges it from his record, Satan still keeps his record. Amen. So he's reminding you of something that you don't even need to repent of because your advocate already took care of it. Ha, ha, ha. But if you don't understand that, if you like, if it was like unlearnable for you, then the, the enemy can just slap you around like a cat and mouse, cat playing with a mouse. And you feel condemnation. You feel insufficient. You feel inadequate. You feel like God can't use me. And you keep going back to that night when you made the mistake in your mind. You keep replaying it over and over and over again as stimulated and prodded by the enemy for you to recall and remember. But I want to make sure you understand today that the Lord Jesus Christ endured a lot of pain so that you don't have to carry that junk anymore. And for you to keep carrying it is to make the cross of Jesus Christ of none effect and to make the blood of the Lamb less powerful than what it is. I need somebody here to embrace and accept the forgiveness that Jesus has promised you. If you need to repent, I need you to do that right now. Not I. You need you to do that. Ask the Lord to forgive you. Say, Jesus, I'm sorry. I got off track. I got carnal. I wasn't praying. I did some stupid stuff. Stupid some mistakes. Lord, I, the, 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 the pain of it is always before me, and I, I remember that. But Jesus, I believe the word today that you came to take away the sins of the world. You know, I know how the enemy works. Oh, but what you did, man, an old song we used to sing when I was a young person. There's bigger sins than that beneath the blood. There's greater mistakes by far that he's already forgiven people of. And when the devil tries to use it against you to feel like God's done with you and God can't use you, remember this. That sin is under the blood and there's bigger sins than that under the blood. <laughs> God's able. And I need somebody to walk up here right now take a step of faith and say, I claim the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. I refuse to live in condemnation. I refuse to be beat up by the enemy for my mistakes. I'm going to accept the free gift of salvation over and over again that Jesus promised to me. The Word of God says I'm not to sin. This is not a license to sin. But what it is is it's an invitation to take advantage of the fact that you got the best lawyer that love could buy at your fingertips. Your advocate, Jesus Christ, who in his briefcase 
evidence to set you free. Come on, why don't we all gather in just for a minute if you're willing to come forward. We're going to pray together. Thank God for His forgiveness. anymore that the lawyer pled your case that the lawyer showed the evidence the blood's already been shed death has already happened the substitutionary lamb has been sacrificed and now you're clean in the sight of God somebody give praise to him right now you're justified by the blood of the lamb you
right now. Let's rejoice together what the Lord's doing in our lives. enough. He's been so good to us. He's fighting for us. 
compelled to say right now that if you uh, have asked the Lord to forgive you and wash you and cleanse you of your sins, that the Lord has forgiven you by faith because you believe what the Word promised, that your sins are washed away. But the Bible teaches very clearly and explicitly once you've asked God to forgive you, that you are to be baptized in water in the name of Jesus for the remission of all of your sins. If you've been baptized in Jesus' name before, you don't need to get baptized in Jesus' name again. But if you're not sure whether or not you were baptized in Jesus' name, then with full authority of Scripture, I declare you need to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ because there's no other name under heaven given among men that you can be saved by. You're saved by the name of Jesus as it cleanses you. The waters of baptism. So if you're here today and you haven't been baptized in Jesus' name or maybe baby, your parents took you and they told you when you were baptized when you were a baby. But the baptism the Bible teaches is about a step of faith. Putting our faith in Jesus Christ. Well, you weren't doing that. You were just a baby. Today, as you're putting your trust in the sacrifice of Jesus to take care of your sins, in faith you respond in obedience to the Word of God. You can talk to one of our guest services, pastoral team, one of these people that you prayed with up here and say, I want to be baptized. I really feel like I need to be baptized in Jesus' name. Today is the day of salvation. And as soon as you believe, as soon as you believe that the Lord Jesus, His sacrifice is taking care of your sins, you need to be baptized in His name. And the Bible promises that you will receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. That's the comforter. That's God's Spirit that comes along beside you, helps you to be an overcomer. It's the seal of ownership that, that you belong to the Lord. You can receive that experience right here. Amen. God bless you. It's great to see you in the house of the Lord today. We'll see you on Tuesday night. And then on Saturday, we're looking forward to a great time raising money. Towards the back, there are some that are still praying. We want to give respect to that, give them space for that.